featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Geyer and I are pleased to welcome to AR Zone Michael and Karen Budke of Stop Animal Exploitation Now, or SANE. SANE is a grassroots organization in the United States that's focused on ending the abuse of other animals in laboratories. Michael Budke once worked in laboratories as an animal health technician, witnessing firsthand the traumas inflicted on other animals. SANE was founded in 1996 and the Budkis have since campaigned, educated and investigated full-time throughout the United States. SANE calls attention to and in many cases has put a stop to experimentation on primates and other individuals and the seizures by labs of dogs and cats from shelters as well as revealing many other forms of routine abuse. Karen and Michael, thank you both for being here today and welcome to AR Zone. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. Our listeners are likely to be aware of many groups and organisations who campaign against the use of others in laboratories. Could you please tell us why you felt it necessary to start your organisation and what makes SANE unique? Well, we incorporated SANE back in 1996 and one of the reasons we felt it was important to start a new organisation was to focus exclusively on this issue because many other groups deal with a large number of issues and we feel that can detract from both focus and effectiveness and also we felt that it was important to take what was essentially a fairly new and much more thorough approach on this issue of doing a different kind of investigation and combining that with a real concentration on getting the information out through the news media and very thoroughly documenting everything that we could in terms of what was happening to the animals, how much money is being spent, exactly what takes place inside the laboratories, because we felt like that was not happening enough. Well, also, we started as grassroots activists. That was one of the things we definitely wanted to stay focused, was to train grassroots activists and support them in targeting a effective campaign against the local lab in their area uh, because it can be very daunting to go after these large uh, institutions. One of the problems in the United States, at least, when it comes to talking about these issues is that it's not even clear who we're referring to when we talk about animals, quote-unquote. So who are animals according to the laws in the U.S. that regulate these laboratories? Um, In terms of the Animal Welfare Act, which is the only law that governs the use of animals in laboratories, many species are overtly excluded from coverage in the law. In fact, rats, mice, birds, amphibians, and farm animals not used in actual medical procedure-type research are excluded from the definition of the word animal as far as the Animal Welfare Act goes, so that they have absolutely no legal protection, which means that the vast majority of animals in laboratories, again, it's literally anything goes. And even for the animals that are covered by the Act, the effectiveness of this law is often 
very seriously exaggerated because the requirements of it and the regulations that come out of it are really fairly minimal in that they tend to require things like certain cage sizes, how often animals should be given food and water, that for surgical procedures, anesthesia should be used, cages should be cleaned, things like that. But because laboratories and the protocols that they use are approved by their own employees, essentially, the animal care and use committees are made up almost entirely of the employees of the laboratories who perform the experiments, and these committees can allow exceptions to any part of the Animal Welfare Act, whether we want to talk about how often animals are fed, how often they're given water, how often cages are cleaned, or if anesthesia is used at all, in many instances, the effectiveness of the law can become, can become almost meaningless. Well, essentially what we're trying to get across is that what you and I would be prosecuted if we did this to our animals in our own homes, they, they routinely do across the board where animals aren't, like you said, given adequate food and water or pain relief or even how long they're restrained in a restraint chair. Basically, they could take all of that and negate it. But see, a lot of labs stand behind this. When you write to them, they sit there and say, well, we're inspected. You know, we have an internal use committee that, that approves all of these, uh, the, these different procedures. So we're, we have a lot of oversight. And that we also follow the Animal Welfare Act. But like we're saying, some animals don't, aren't included. And also, their internal committees can basically say, well, yes, I think that's important to, to cross that part of the law out so you can do this procedure. And not even that with these inspections. We know from talking to individual inspectors that they are told from their higher-ups to trim down, to go in, write up their everything they see, cut that in half, take that and cut that in half. And so they're told the individual inspectors to not even, to look the other way, essentially. Don't even write up some things that they're seeing. And we also know that the West, uh, there's two regional offices of the USDA. There's a West Coast and an East Coast. Run entirely independent. And routine, I mean, the West Coast is very good about finding and citing where we, where the East Coast is not. And we know that when we find something going on in, from the internal documents and we filed something with USDA, that if it's in the East Coast, that most likely it's not going to get uh, the attention it would in the West Coast. And in fact, the USDA's own, their own internal office of the Inspector General came to that same conclusion in an audit report they did a number of years ago that said that the Eastern office was not using the authority that they had to adequately enforce the law. So that whether this law has any meaning can depend just on where the lab happens to be located. And on top of that, this whole idea of inspections, I mean, I know in many situations the inspectors really are trying to do their best they can with the job. But they may have a couple of days or maybe three days at most to inspect a literally huge laboratory like the University of California Davis, UC Davis, just in primates alone, has, depending on the year, anywhere between five and 7,000 of them. You could spend more than three days 
just dealing with the primate center there, let alone the other tens of thousands of animals that this facility uses. And so it's not uncommon that even though the inspectors really, in many instances, try to do their job, they just aren't given the opportunity. A very good example, again, with the University of California, Davis, we had obtained many of their internal records from primates who do this on a regular basis. It's how we perform investigations. The cause of death for one of the primates at UC Davis recently was that the animal was essentially found hanging in a tree from bungee cord that was wrapped around his or her neck. Now, that wasn't mentioned in any of the USDA inspection reports, but they probably don't have time to sit down and go through every single piece of paper that these universities have, all of the records. But that's what we do. So it seems that the law doesn't really protect anyone to any significant degree now. Do you think those individuals who are not currently covered by the Animal Welfare Act are likely to benefit at all if the Act were changed to include them? I think it would it would be beneficial if only because more information would become available. And those of us who do monitor laboratories very closely would have access to more information. I don't expect that it will be happening anytime soon just because of the sheer cost of doing it. Because if, as we believe, rats and mice make up well over 90% of the animals, in fact, I believe over 95% of the animals used in laboratories, the additional cost of actually inspecting all of the facilities that house rats and mice and how they're cared for, let alone the birds, the fish, the amphibians, it would be a monumental task. Mm, yeah, you mentioned rats and mice that um, make up over well over 90% of the individuals who are used for experiments. One thing that I find is that a lot of advocates who advocate against vivisection or experimentation seem to focus on um, primates and dogs. Why do you think that is? Well, the reason a lot of times that we tend to um, concentrate on the primates is because they're very expensive. These labs purchase it to maintain. They keep a lot more thorough documents on them. And they're also ones that they keep long, more long term. So they're going to have uh, more logs on them. Because we, when we uh, file Freedom of Information Acts with these different labs, we go for animal care records. We go for uh, necropsy reports, which is basically an autopsy. We uh, file for you know, all, any type of animal care, photos, all, all across the board. And because these animals, like we said, are documented, the primates are, are documented much more thoroughly. And also, unfortunately, the general public is going to be more concerned with something that they're used to. Mm. You know, they're used to dealing, you know, having cats and dogs, so they're aligned to them and have, you know, an affection for them. And so people become more outraged about, you know, what's happening to a dog or a cat or, you know, and also with, well, essentially with the primates too, because they're similar to us. The one thing I did want to make sure that everyone realizes, you know, there is a lot out there with the chimp issue right now, the Great Ape Protection Act, and about how, uh, you know, 
different universities and, and labs are moving away from using chimps. I don't want people to think that that's going to mean the end of primate research. Unfortunately, there are over 125,000 primates in the system each year. That doesn't mean they're all experiments on. Some are just in a holding pattern. Some are in a breeding, breeding program. But they are incarcerated in the labs. And also with the dealers, too, they're, that are waiting you know, to be sold to a lab. Chips make up about 1% of all the primates that are in the uh, system right now. So it's a great start, but I don't want anyone to confuse that that would be the end of all primate research. And I do think it's a slippery slope once we can get the chimp that that would really be, you know, because if you're taking something that's a closest DNA and saying they're not good uh, research uh, subjects, that then we, how could you then say, well, this mouse or this rat or, or rabbit or dog or whatever other animal they feel is going to be their model would make a better model for whatever they're trying to study, which I guess segues to the whole reason why this research is going on. We're finding more and more it is very much money-driven. The best estimate that I've seen, and this is several years old, but the best estimate that I've seen, which was in fact also used by uh, someone with the National Institutes of Health themselves, was that the federal government through the NIH was funding animal research to the tune of over $12 billion a year. And that probably then would not include uh, other agencies like the Department of Defense or NASA, but the NIH is by far the largest funder of animal research. and Which is all tax-based money. Exactly. And so for the general public, even if they don't care about animals, they should be concerned about this because this is their money being used. And at a time when we're talking about whether or not we can afford to fund health care for human beings, how many human beings could we provide health care for with $12 billion a year? I mean, it's a very real choice that we need to be or looking at. Programs. Yes, I mean, one of the one of the real concrete examples is in the area of drug addiction research, the NIH typically funds well over $50 million a year into drug addiction research. How many human beings could be funded for substance abuse treatment programs with $50 million a year? Within our movement, there are some people who claim that when we focus our advocacy on regulating the exploitation that's taking place inside laboratories. It's possible that we might be ensuring that the exploitation actually continues because regulating exploitation may allow us to become more comfortable with that exploitation. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, I don't think that's, that's accurate because in many instances, using the regulatory system as a way of fighting animal research has had concrete impacts that belie exactly what you're talking about. For example, uh, just this last year, after we had filed an official complaint against the Penn State University Medical School due to the death of a primate, the re end result of this whole situation was that 
this Penn State Medical School permanently ended all use of primates. Now, they were not a huge user of primates, but the point is the regulatory system can be used to push this issue to the point where abolitionist steps are taken. Besides that, and this is this is one of the ways that we think is, or one of the points that we think is very important to make with all of this. As we said earlier, the regulatory system and the actual requirements of the Animal Welfare Act are very minimal. But if we're looking at research laboratories that are not even capable of doing basic things, like making sure the animals have water, making sure they have adequate veterinary care, making sure there isn't a primate in the cage before the cage is put into a washing system. If they can't even do minimal things like that, why should we believe they're capable of doing anything that even roughly resembles science? And so this all goes together. It's a matter of not only holding these laboratories to the standards that they themselves say are so important, but they can't seem to follow, but it's also... A, a, a method of making the point with the general public that this system is so far broken, it's really beyond repair. Michael, in her introduction, Carolyn mentioned that you once worked in a laboratory as an animal uh, health technician. Coming from that background, what's your opinion of tactics that are used against people that do that sort of work? I'm thinking of things like protesting at the homes of doctors and scientists or sending abusive emails or targeting the children and the friends of the people that do the experiments and so on. What do you, what's your take on that? Well, I understand how people get frustrated because many people feel that the rate of change on this issue is far too slow, and we agree with that. But in some situations, we have to look at all of the results of our actions. Clearly, in the United States, we have a right, a constitutionally guaranteed right to freedom of assembly as well as a right to freedom of speech. And that right doesn't change any if that that sidewalk you're protesting on is in front of the university or the laboratory versus being in front of a researcher's home. But in many instances, I think we have to keep the lines of communication open because I can think of one example where there was a, a uh, scientist who was involved in animal research who, because he was approached in a respectful manner and given information, it actually caused him to think and consider what he was doing, and now he is a an outspoken advocate against animal research. One of the other things that we think is important for people to remember is that there are guidelines that have been expressed, and one of them, one of the best examples that was expressed was that was by the Animal Liberation Front. And it said that the Animal Liberation Front does not in any way condone violence against any animal, human or non-human. And if that's a guideline that a very radical organization like the Animal Liberation Front espouses, then I think that's something that all of us should follow. 
Additionally, one of the other things that we have to keep in mind is how are things going to be perceived? And we don't want to give the opposition fodder because obviously we've seen that one of their goals is to paint our entire movement as terrorists. And so we don't want to be handing them the tools that they need to be able to negate us to negate everything we say. One of the things that you've probably noticed about the way that we approach things is that everything we do is very fact-based and very thoroughly documented. Well, I do want to make sure that sometimes when, um, unfortunately, the media is very good at picking up on sensationalism. And we want to make sure the media is picking up on why we're doing protests as opposed to what we're doing at these protests. So it's important to, you know, to stay, to, to keep this media on topic and not have it give the media or the researchers fodder to use against us. We want to be against them. We keep the media focused on what's going on in that lab. Because what it comes down to in the end is that this is about the animals. And we're trying to get information out about what happens to them, how they're being abused, how they're suffering, and how they're dying. And we need to make sure that that stays the focus. In preparation for today's interview, Michael, you mentioned that there are three main types of experimental use of other animals, um, pharmaceutical testing, consumer product testing, and basic medical and scientific research. I have two questions for you both about this. First, are there any meaningful differences for the individuals who are subjected to these different sorts of testing? And second, do different approaches by activists work better against each of them? Well, like you said, there are three types of research. And, and the laws that govern these animals, or really not the animals, but what's required is different. They're all covered by the Animal Welfare Act if they're illegal animals. The first one is like our consumer product testing, you know, our soaps and toothpaste and cosmetics, anything that's not considered a drug, um, essentially. So they're required to do safety tests. It's not required to do animal testing. And there are plenty of companies that adhere to a non-animal-based safety testing. And there, you can go to a website, Leaping Buddy, and find out who those companies are. There's, I, I don't know, oh, the list goes on and on. And, and those products are becoming more mainstream. You don't have to go to a uh, specialty store to buy them or buy them online when we first became activists back in the 80s. But the thing I wanted to say was with those, they they don't have to do uh, animal-based testing. So for someone to say, well, you know, if that gets in your eye, we'll think of, you know, a, a rabbit that didn't hurt you. That's not, like I said, there's plenty of companies. So the biggest thing is to get people to understand that these companies are out there. So table, you know, uh, get free samples to give out, pass out the leaking bunny uh, brochure, and, and just, then the other, oh, you want to add yes. something? Well, I wanted to move on and talk about the pharmaceutical testing. That's because another that's, one too. that's another one basically where drugs are, or in some instances medical devices. The difference between this area and consumer product testing is that it's 
actually required by law that animals are used for medical testing like that. But there's one thing that a lot of people don't realize about both consumer product testing and pharmaceutical and drug testing is that one of the big things they have in common is that the vast majority of the most painful experimentation falls in this area because the vast majority of the painful experiments that are done without benefit of anesthesia come from these two categories. And in fact, even in these areas, we've seen many instances where the labs can't even conduct the tests properly. One of the big issues that we just brought up recently was three of the large uh, pharmaceutical and product testing type companies, Charles River, Merck, and there's one in uh, northern U.S., Wuxi Aptech, it's a very odd name, had, had issues where they were doing the tests so incorrectly that they were literally drowning animals in toxic chemicals. What they're supposed to be doing is running a, a uh, essentially what's like a rubber or vinyl hose down an animal's throat so that these chemicals are placed in a liquefied form in their stomach. Well, they're doing this procedure improperly, engaging what they call gavage error, and as a result, instead of these chemicals going into the animal's stomachs, they're going directly into the animal's lungs. And for example, Charles River killed nine animals this way in the course of three years. And we're talking primates, rabbits, and I believe one dog. And again, if they're not even capable of doing these tests correctly, what does that say about the scientific validity of these tests? Even if there ever was any possibility of them having any validity, if they're not being done properly, that's going to begin to make them meaningless. And when you combine that with the interspecies differences, because as both of you know, when you have a dog or a cat that's sick, you don't take them to a medical doctor. You take them to a veterinarian because they're different. And if you or I was sick, we wouldn't go to a vet. We go to an MD because we're different. You can take an aspirin, but if you give an aspirin a day to a cat for 10 days, you'll have a dead cat on your hands. And the differences go on and on and on. And that's the reality of what we're looking at here. These things don't protect human beings. If anything, they just protect companies from liability. Well, then there's our third kind, that's the one we concentrate on the most, that's happening in uh, the local universities. And essentially, this is just basic science. There is, I don't, again, I use that word loosely. loosely. Yeah. They, they're studying like they're putting lectures into primates or, or cats or we've even seen it in pigeons where they're studying what, oh, what's this part of the brain do? What's this cell? Or if I tweak this, what happens? You know, or they're like cutting or severing, you know, spinal cords and, and seeing, you know, how that animal reacts, to what part of the body this, you know, a lot of neurological, and it's just, it's not towards any type of drug. It's not towards any type of therapy. It's essentially what we 
come down to is, I mean, because we've actually taken some of this to uh, emergency uh, room uh, doctors, other scientists, and said, what do you find in this? Because we get critiques and of medical personnel to look at these things, and they're like, this has no relevancy to human. A very good example of that was, and this was one of the very first campaign we were involved in, this was back in the late 1980s. The local university here at the University of Cincinnati was conducting a head injury research project on cats. And run for over a decade, used over a million dollars. in thousand cats? Yes. And the only result that came out of this duplicated a finding from a study that was from the early 1900s. Yeah, it was in the journal, medical journal. It was already documented. And not only that, she was using a uh, paralytic drug that caused cranial uh, swelling. So this whole thing... Raising into cranial pressure. Yeah. yeah, so when you're studying, you know, how the animal's skull got crushed... Been invalidated by the drug they were using. And that's that kind of thing is really pretty much par for the course because it's really about attracting grant money. And one of the things that people don't understand about this whole grant money process is that in addition to the fact that it's so much money, we're talking, as we said earlier, about $12 billion a year, and that there are many universities in the U.S. that literally bring in over $100 million per year for the performance of animal experiments, there's also a couple of little facets of this that people don't understand. For every grant, that a university receives, they also receive something called indirect costs. Indirect costs can run anywhere from 40 or 50 percent of the total to an additional 100 percent of the total. And what that means is if this was a grant for $100,000, which is almost no grants are that small, that university would receive an additional, say, 50 to $100,000 on top of that amount and that additional money is totally unrestricted. They can do whatever they want with it. And on top of that, there's some there's a specific kind of grant out there called a research scientist award, which is whose purpose is for nothing but more salary for the researchers. So you could have a quote unquote scientist out there who's doing three research projects. It's already bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, to the university, and because this is full-time and they can't teach, and so they're kind of losing that, that teaching salary, they can apply for one of those research scientist awards and get more salary brought in, and those research scientist awards, I've seen them for as much as $120,000 per year for the salary for one person, on top of the salary uh, components of the other grants that same person was already getting. So anyone that says this isn't money-driven isn't paying attention. Well, I just love it when I hear them say that they're dedicating their lives to science, and I'm like, wow, dedication, making six figures. Really? <laughs> A lot of people would be more than happy to dedicate their lives to that six-figure patient. So then you... I'm guessing you'd disagree with um, neurobiologist Colin Blakemore, who ARZ Zone interviewed in 2011, and he said that 
quote, there's no evidence that research on animals is less productive or successful than any other area of science, unquote. He also said that it's not true that the majority of experiments performed on other animals are done for trivial reasons or just so that the researchers can get funding. I would very much disagree with that because in my experience, very often the people that are making statements like that either are currently being paid to perform animal experimentation or were previously paid to perform it or are somehow a part of that that system where they receive funding for doing it, whether they're, you know, an attending veterinarian at a laboratory. There was a study that was done a number of years ago. Uh, the authors were, I believe, believe their names were Plaus and Herzog, and what they did was they took research projects that had been approved by one university or one laboratory's animal care and use committee and had them examined by the animal care and use committee of another disinterested laboratory. And a significant percentage of them, I want to say something on the order of 50%, were not approved. And see, that's one Even of though they had been approved at the first university. And that tends to make you think that there's a very high level of self-interest here because what many people don't know is that these animal care and use committees are made up almost entirely of employees of the laboratories that are receiving the money for the grants that they're looking at. There is at most one unaffiliated community member. And when you're talking about a committee, and I've seen, I've actually attended some of these animal care committee meetings where you may have 10, 12, 15 people on a committee, you could have that community representative voting no on every single protocol, and it wouldn't make any difference. When I hear about this sort of stuff, I, I wonder, I think it's probably easy enough for a person to avoid products like cosmetics and cleaning supplies and that sort of stuff that have been tested on other animals. I mean, just as... It's, you know, it's 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 not all that difficult to live vegan. So I think people can generally do that. But what can individual consumers do, or what can vegans do if they're not, you know, if they can't do the sort of thing that that you do, or they're not prepared to do protests or or whatever? How much can individual decisions that people make as as you know as part of their normal way of life have any effect on that sort of scientific, so-called scientific research that's done on other animals? Well, we run campaigns, uh, as SANE does, and we ask the individuals that are uh, part of our organization to write letters to the USDA, to the uh, university presidents, uh, to spur change. And we know from talking with to people within USDA these letters make a difference because we're talking, you know, hundreds are getting thousands. We're getting sent, you know, emails, calls, letters. So as an individual, they could do that. Secondly, one of our strong points is that we train grassroots activists and we support them in how to do effective campaigns. And so to take it basically to the activists, we're doing twice a year right now, conferences called Free the Animals, Effective Tax Actions Against Civic Section. And so we're trying, we're taking speakers to them to train them how to 
basically run effective campaigns and also to get a face with who they call to get information. Because the, the thing is, there's really kind of a, a misunderstanding of this in that you don't have to have an MD or a PhD or even the AHD degree that I have to be able to work on this issue effectively. The resources that are out there through the Internet and through other methodologies, any human, anyone who is concerned about this and is willing to put the time in can do it. And as Karen said, that's why we're doing these conferences, and we hope that as many people as possible will come to our next one, which is the 1st through the 4th of March in Gainesville, Florida. The 4th is an optional in-service day at the local primate sanctuary. Because what we're doing with these conferences is showing people how you get the information, how you find the facts, basically how you get the dirt on all these laboratories, and then how you use that. You need to do multifaceted work so that you bring the information up, you take it to the news media. This can involve protest actions, or it cannot. One of the most effective methodologies we use is a news conference. And if you want to do a news conference, you only have to have one person, and that's you. And if you want to organize protests, we train people on how to organize protests. If you want to deal with the news media, we will show you how to write effective press releases. And we'll even send it out for them, too, if they need that. Because we, we have someone that handles that for us that has all the local media contacts in every city across the U.S. So we even make that available for people. And, in, and the other thing that we want to make clear is that the same methodology that we use, this fact-based, investigation-based approach, can be used on virtually any issue that people are concerned about because whether it's puppy mills, zoos, circuses, animal transporters, animal breeders, all of these entities, they're government regulated. And you and I as citizens of the United States have a legal right to look at every piece of paper these government agencies have in their possession, including their internal communications, the emails they send to you know, your friendly neighborhood laboratory or, or whatever else it is even the photos that they have on hand. And this allows us and will allow any activist to have an impact that they don't realize they can have. And that's one of the reasons we're doing these conferences is we want people to know it doesn't make any difference how big these entities are, whether it's the laboratories or the zoos or the circuses or whatever. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. And well, the we last can thing make they them want, fall. The last thing they want is exposure. They, they don't want to be in the, the media. They don't want people to know. I mean, that's one of the things we've noticed when we've done protest places. People are like, stop, and they're like, what are you, why are you here? And they live in the area, and they're like, wow, I didn't know that was going on right here in my home. Right down the street sometimes, even. Last thing these labs want is any type of exposure, and and we know where it, that this is effective, and the reason we know it's effective is both because of the the accomplishments we've had just, I mean, for example, just in the last year, but we also know it's effective because when we've had contact with whistleblowers, 
they've told us what goes on. One one person that we had contact with was within one of the large laboratories in the U.S. told us that one point they were talking to the administration. They'd had a bad inspection report, and there was something relevant to some animals that had died. And the administration was trying to tell them, oh, it's not a big deal. It won't get out there. It's not a problem. Don't worry about it. You know, the, the animal deaths actually happened over a year ago. It's no big deal. And this person said, this is documented. It's out there. The public is going to find out about it. It's going to be in the news media. And the administration kept saying, no, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. And then finally they said, I had to laugh when they, they, they uh, conveyed this to me. They said, look, Budkey's going to find this. It's going to be out there. It'll be in the news media. Mark my words. And literally within two weeks of that conversation, it was in the news media. You can do this, and it doesn't make any difference where you are or what your education is. This isn't rocket science. You don't have to have a Ph.D. or anything else. They're making tons of mistakes, and they just think it's part of doing business. And so they we, we monitor all 1,100 research facilities problem is we can't run effective campaigns against all of them, and that's why we feel it's important to have the grassroots organizations involved, because they are going to be there day in and day out in that city, running, you know, tabling and doing media or a protest, whatever is effective. And, and some of the situations where we've been successful have been in locations where we've been able to work cooperatively with a local organization. A very good example of that is this last year, we were involved with numerous situations where Harvard Medical School, through their primate center, had killed a number of primates through negligence. We were successful in getting this out through the news media. We also worked very closely with local activists who ended up doing protests multiple times in this city. We also combined that with a situation where we ran paid TV commercials that targeted Harvard. The result of all of this was that in something that I've never heard of before, the director of Harvard's Primate Research Center resigned in disgrace this last year. And I don't know of any situation where an animal protection organization has been successful in putting that much pressure on a laboratory. But it's effective because all of the pieces came together and the involvement of the local organization, the local activists in the Boston area, was crucial. We run, a, we sponsor and host these different events every year to, to give people a chance to run a, you know, to do a protest table, I don't, what all, news conferences. And so one of the things is World Laboratory and Liberation Week which this year the dates are April 20th through the 28th, where we get people to sign up to do events, and then also other activists in their area can find out what's going on, and they can get together and have a larger event. And also we feel that we can package that all and make a bigger uh, story out of it, saying, well, this is hundreds, you know, hundreds of different things are going on across the U.S., and we also international, too. Yes. And then we also have another date coming up, the National Day of Mourning. That's May 26th. It's a one-day event. 
And then we also do National Primate Liberation Week, which this year is going to be October 12th through the 20th. And we're going to have that first weekend, we're going to do our uh, another conference, the Free the Animals Action. That's going to be the weekend, first weekend, which is October 11th through the 14th, out in, in the L.A. area. Karen and Michael, we spoke earlier about why... Um SANE is doing something different and important in the way that you're campaigning against experimentation. Can you please speak about why you've chosen to focus on vivisection as opposed to um, any other type of exploitation, in particular, I guess, um, other animals that are used for food, given that they do make up such a large percentage of the animals that are exploited? Well, it's what got us started in it all with Michael having been in the lab setting, it, it's what got us involved in animal rights in the beginning, and we just felt like that was what spurred us to get here, and it's what's going to keep us motivated to keep going on. I mean, at Fame is a vegan organization. We, when we're in different areas and we're uh, traveling, we know that different activists, that maybe the circus is in town or they do a weekly or monthly fur protest, and if we're there, we'll attend it. I mean, we feel like we do one thing and we do that best because there is so much and so many different aspects of this that we don't want to dilute our effectiveness. What, one of the other things that I would like to say about that also is that even the number that we use, because we tend to use a number uh, for animals in laboratories of about 25 million, I think that that is in all likelihood, a very serious underestimation. And I'll, I'll give you the reason I believe that. Just this last year, I found out about a building at a laboratory in Maryland. And this building is for one purpose only, for the housing of rats and mice. And this building is roughly the size of a football field. And at any one time, it houses in all likelihood, over 200,000 rodents. And that's one building at one laboratory. And so I believe that the numbers that we're using drastically underestimate the number of animals that are actually in laboratories. I can't prove that, that it's 10 or 15 or 100 fold more, but I have a very strong feeling that it is much larger than we're seeing. But regardless of the number, every single animal that dies or suffers is important. And so I think activists have to make the decision to be involved in areas where they can be the most effective. And that's why we work in the animal research issue, because I think we can make a very good argument that we are one of, if not the most effective organizations in the movement on the animal research issue. Just in the year 2012, our work generated over 93 different news stories on the animal research issue in the U.S. in everything from the Boston Globe and the Washington Post to Nature Magazine. Many of those even went international. We were able to get five non-human primates and coordinate the re release from a well-known laboratory in the state of California. We were involved in getting the Penn State Medical School to stop using primates entirely. And when some other organizations were saying that just the concept of retiring primates was okay, this was a situation where 100 primates, their quote-unquote retirement, was being announced as of last September, 
many of the groups that were initially so happy about this didn't bother to notice that those animals that were being retired from the New Iberia Research Facility in Louisiana were being sent to the Texas Biomedical Research Institute and not to a sanctuary. The Texas Biomedical Research Institute had been fined for killing animals through by violating the Animal Welfare Act. And in the past, one of the most salient violations they had had was that they actually began the post-mortem on a baboon only to find out this animal was not yet dead. And clearly, this is not the kind of facility that should be getting a hundred more animals, especially chimps, to be cared for. And so we came out against this very quickly, and the result of what we said was that later many organizations jumped on the bandwagon, and eventually the NIH said, okay, those hundred chimps are going to go to a sanctuary now instead. And the fact that an organization as comparatively small as ours can have that kind of an impact tells me that we're working in the right issue and that grassroots activists all across the country, if they want to put in the time and the effort, can have the same kind of impact. Well, I think the one thing, too, we've noticed is that of many of the animals that are exploited for various reasons are short-term because the big thing is turnover because it's profit-driven. You know, like puppy mills, they're not going to keep an animal that's not productive in producing. And then farmed animals, many of those animals are turned over, you know, to be turned in slaughtered because it's, it's profitable. It's not profitable to keep them around. The thing with, we've noticed, we have had records. We found some of these animals in labs have been there for, yeah, decades. So we, that's one of the things I think that really haunts us is that some of these animals are, are confined and exploited through research for, I mean, there was one monkey that we found records that it had been in this lab for almost 50 years. So we want to make a difference for those animals because they're, I mean, that's horrible to be in such a, a long-term uh, confinement. And so really to do any kind of an accurate comparison in terms of numbers, if you're talking about an animal that's suffering every day, for five decades, how many times should you count that animal? Once? Or once for every day they're incarcerated? Michael and Karen, you both uh, spoke about the Free the Animals Conference, and you mentioned that that you've had you had one already, and you're having a second one. And I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us where the first one was, and why you chose the little town of Gainesville, Florida, for the second? Well, our first one was in St. Louis back in late October. And we, the, I mean, everyone that attended had only positive things to say. The only thing that anybody had anything to say was the hotel that it was held at didn't have a free shuttle from the airport. I mean, that's pretty good to say that that's the only thing people had. I mean, we asked, we said we want constructive consent criticism because this is the first one we've had and we want to make our next one better. And, I mean, that resounding, uh, a lot of people saying they wanted to come, they wanted to know where our next one was going to be. So we, uh, that was in St. Louis, and it was connected with the uh, University of, I mean, uh, Washington University out there. They're doing cat innovation. And they're, they're running a very effective campaign on trying to get that ended out there. Yeah. St. Louis Vegan. 
And so now our next one is going to be, like I said, the first weekend in March, first through fourth. Really, the conference is just that Saturday and Sunday and Friday evening. We have uh, connected with it on Friday, March 1st, and Monday the 4th, daytime hours. People can volunteer at Jungle Friends. It's a private sanctuary right there in Gainesville. And they have been very supportive with uh, our organization. We work uh, very closely with them because basically we're targeting research facilities and the one thing we want them to do is to shut down their uh, their research they're doing. And so sometimes, like we had or last year, five primates go to a sanctuary that we coordinated. That was from a, a research study we had been targeting. And, of course, we know through Jungle Friends that they have animals there from different universities. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. We've been running a campaign against them. Because if you think about it, these research facilities aren't going to call us up and go, yeah, you know what, you're right. That animal should not be subjected to that. And, yeah, okay, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to turn it over to a sanctuary. And, and so very often we find out that, that research projects have been terminated or that, that things are happening through dealing with some sanctuaries. And the important thing here. And this is one of the big reasons that we decided to have the conference in Gainesville is it's one thing to talk about animals in the abstract and to think about you know, 100,000 primates that are in laboratories. Or, or Some people may is. not even know. I mean, I mean what is, what kind think, of primate looks like? Right. Most people, I bet you, if you said primate, are thinking gorilla or chimp, which is not what's used really. I mean, so if you, you can... Well, we, what it is, Jungle Friends is located right there in Gainesville, and they have over 100 different primates there. They have probably, I don't know how many different species, but essentially... They, well, they have capuchin monkeys, spider monkeys, squirrel monkeys, marmosets, tamarins, and many of these are the very species and kinds of animals that are in the laboratories. And in fact, as we said, they have a number of them that have come from laboratories, and we think it's important for people to have the opportunity to actually connect with the animals that they're fighting for. Because it's just like... Well, it surely it, it, helps it's, us. Well, yes. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's very much like the, with, with veganism. It's very hard to go out and eat a hamburger after you've looked a cow in the eye. And it's very hard in just the same way to ignore the plight of primates in laboratories when you've looked a monkey in the eye and you can see that there's a soul on the other side of those eyes and you know that there's, there is an identity and a person there. And that's why we think it's so important for people to have the opportunity to connect with these animals and literally see who we're talking about. So it's going to be a uh there's optional volunteer days, in-service days, on Friday daytime, March 1st, and all Black day, day all day Monday the 4th. So we're giving people that opportunity to also, you know, give back to the sanctuary that, that does take in animals from labs. And, and the other reason... Because we want to keep that going. And, yes, and it, they need help. Well, it's... If you think about the, the issue of primates in the laboratories... We're seeing progress. We're seeing research projects ended. We're seeing uh, 
essentially, I think anyone would, would be willing to admit that the end of chimp research is on the horizon. Where are all of these animals going to go? We need to begin to look at this whole issue in terms of if we're making progress on getting primates out of laboratories, we as a movement have a responsibility to make sure that when the primates come out of the laboratories, they have some place to go. And that's why for every organization out there that works on the animal research issue, I would challenge them to do what we do. What was the percentage of people put in sanctuaries? We probably put 10% of our annual budget into building enclosures and helping sanctuaries that are taking the animals in that can come out of laboratories. And I think other organizations that work on this issue should be doing the same thing. Because if you really want the animals out of the labs, then you need to put your money where your mouth is and make sure that they have some place to go. And that's one of the reasons we think it's important to have this these conferences in places like Gainesville. But the other thing is, too, and this came very much came out of the, the conference we did in St. Louis, was that there are a lot of, of national animal-oriented events. But many activists never have the opportunity to go there. So we think it's important to take the confidence to the activists. Well, when we've been doing our speaking tours in the past, we had done one in 2010 and 2011, people were writing to us and saying, why don't you bring it to us? And one of the states that we were getting a lot of response from was Florida. So we knew that was a prime place to come to, to talk to activists, and we know there are good groups there. So one of our big things, too, is to get um, area groups to network, and because that's, again, our grassroots space. And, and see, that's the thing. We want these conferences, and that was one of the most uniform comments we got out of the event we did in St. Louis, was that everyone came out of it feeling energized and empowered and that they felt like they could do more to make a difference. And that's what we want people to feel because the animal rights movement should be a way for people to have a positive impact on the world that we live in. We want to make positive change. We want people to exercise compassion. We want to end the suffering of animals and we want to educate people. This is the way people should see the animal rights movement. And that's why we're taking these conferences to them. Because, I mean, I'll give you one other example. One of the presentations that we do in our conference is about organizations working together cooperatively. Because we think that more is accomplished for the animals when groups work together. And we talk about campaigns that have involved organizations all across the political spectrum, whether it's Win Animal Rights or the group that Camille Hankins is connected to or the International Primate Protection League that's run by Shirley McGreal because as a movement, we need to be able to move forward and to do that, we have to work on common goals and say that you know, even though I might not agree with absolutely everything that someone else does, 
in this area, we can make a positive difference together. If people are interested in finding out more or attending the conference, how do they go about getting the information? Find us on Facebook, which is SANE, S-A-E-N, and then it's also, you can just search on Stop Animal Exploitation Now. Another way is to go to our website, which is www.sanonline.org. All of the information is there. I want to uh, tell everyone that uh, right now, if you register before the 27th, it, the price goes up by then. I mean, for the whole weekend, we're only charging. Right now, it's $55, and still it only goes up to 60 at the deal because that not only gets you nationally known speakers, but you also get two lunches, vegan lunches, too, and a social is included. So, I mean, it's... We, we try, we're not making, doing these as fundraising. We're doing it to get basically to, to spur. Because we saw in the past there's been different events like the Primate Freedom Tour and things that have energized people. We feel that this will be another way to keep that momentum. Because it's, it, I mean, and this is part of our attitude too. Conferences and events like this aren't, at least shouldn't be, about making money. They're about training and empowering and educating people so that we can all be more effective and do a better job at making a difference for the animals. Karen and Michael, I'd like to thank you so very much for your time today. Before we say goodbye to you, is there anything that we've not thought to ask you that you'd like to mention to our listeners? I'm just really ecstatic that we're able to have this opportunity to reach out to all your listeners to talk to about the section and about SANE uh, as an organization and how we're making an impact on this issue. A number of people have told us that, that SANE is kind of the one of the movement's best-kept secrets, and obviously we want people to learn about the kind of work we do and to get involved in it, but we also want them to learn about what we do because we want them to get the point that they can do it too. Well, also for anyone that might be working in the lab, we, we take your anonymity to the extreme. If you do not want, you want to give us information, but you don't want to, uh, you know, have your identity or possibly your job jeopardized, we work. So we encourage you to call us to let us know to, so you can make a difference for these animals that you uh, know are, being, are suffering within the company you work for. Oh, the one other thing about the Free the Animals, I know sometimes people are, are uh, a little timid that they're going to be uh, subjected to a lot of uh, videos or pictures or horror stories. That's not our objective with this conference. Bailey, it, I mean, we assume that people come are already against animal research. So we're not trying to convince you that, or we're trying to give you the tools so, really, you're not going to be bombarded with that type of, um, you know, pictures it, it, and it, videos. And yeah, the, the conferences are, are not something that have a lot of, you know, really highly disturbing content. Although, of course, if you're talking about vivisection, there's going to be some. But a lot of it is also very positive, too, because, I mean, just as an example, one of the, the talks that, that is done there is, how this primate sanctuaries care for primates that have come out of the laboratory setting. And you get to see both some of the bad problems they have, but you also get to see that now 
these animals are in an environment that's designed to be good for them. And to see, seeing a primate that you know probably spent a lot of their life in what's essentially a slightly glorified stainless steel box, now living out their lives in a habitat that is, has trees, has plants, has fresh air, and is designed for their needs, that's really a very positive experience, at least for me. Encourage everyone to, to come to the conference and also to get involved with World Week, which is coming up in April. It's still plenty of time to get a, an event planned. That's April 20th through the 28th. And so visit our website, contact us. Um, we're more than ha happy to help anyone out getting uh, an event or finding people in their area. Karen and Michael, thank you again for joining us today and for everything that you continue to do on behalf of other animals. Thank you for having us today. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.